This is Mary Ellen Warren from Reader Writer Podcast, and you're listening to The Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. the oven's ready. Wow, that thing took a long time to bake. I mean, nine months. That's a really high-maintenance souffle. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, hey, this is AF Grappin, your head chef. Um, So your grill mistress, Erin, has been pregnant for a while, and she has finally, finally gotten that bun out of the oven. So she and our dish boy, Theo, are celebrating their third child, little boy, our newest junior chef has joined the kitchen. So wanted to let you know that for the next month or so, you'll you'll still be hearing them, but it probably is going to be more me than anyone else for a while, just until we get used to the newborn and past the brand new baby stage. But that doesn't mean that the episodes are going to stop. So, hey, Lexicon of Sewers and Word Chefs, welcome to episode 31 of The Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, A.F. Grappin, and I am flying solo, which hasn't happened since about episode four, I think. Uh, <laughs> I've lightened up a lot, so hopefully this is going to be a little less stiff than those first couple episodes were. Um, we're going to get started with some Stoke the Fire stories. These are for prompt number six. Why is everyone afraid of the mailman? Special Delivery by Terry Keenan Callie slumped in her armchair, dropping her grocery bags to the wood floor with a thud. A few apples rolled out of one of the bags, but she couldn't be bothered to pick them up. The day had been especially trying. Nothing seemed to go right today. An unexpected rainstorm soaked her to the skin on the way to an early morning meeting with a client. A server had crashed while she was trying to enjoy a moment to eat her lunch, and the mountain of bills she'd gotten in the mail were yet another reminder of her soul-crushing debt. She took a few deep breaths and reminded herself that at least it was Friday night. Another evening alone... Just me, a bowl of Ben and Jerry's, and a Netflix marathon, she thought. A perfect evening, alone. She mindlessly leaned forward to reach for the remote on the coffee table, and then snapped back to reality when it wasn't there. What in the world? she thought. I always put it back on the coffee table. She furrowed her brows and scanned the room. She saw it sitting on the floor in front of the TV. That's odd. I don't remember putting that over there. Pushing the thought aside, she decided that if she had to get up, she would at least put the groceries away and get some actual food instead of just dining on Cherry Garcia. Finally able to relax, Callie fell asleep on the couch and was roused awake the next morning by the doorbell. Jumping upright, she tried to focus her eyes to see the time on the clock. Who the hell is ringing the doorbell at 8.30 a.m. on a freaking Saturday? That no-soliciting sign was a waste of the material it was printed on. Callie got up and headed to the door, looked through the peephole, and felt a wave of relief when peering through the peephole revealed the mailman. She made a feeble attempt to straighten her must hair and opened the door. The ever-smiling mailman stood on the other side of the screen, holding a package. How is this guy so happy all the time? 
Callie rubbed her eyes and opened the screen to accept the package. Well, good morning, ma'am. Looks like your package from home is early this week. Normally comes on Tuesdays, doesn't it? Callie thought for a moment, her mind still fumbling with consciousness, and realized that, yes, it was early. Mom normally sent her weekly care package on Saturdays, so they arrived on Tuesday the next week. Taking the package, she mumbled something that sounded like thanks, before closing the door behind her and shuffling back into the house. Callie carried the box to the kitchen table, wondering what was inside. Mom was always very creative about her weekly package. She hoped there was jam. She loved her mother's apricot jam. Callie jumped as the screen door closed, interrupting her childhood memories of Saturday morning cartoons and homemade bread with jam. How long had the mailman been standing there? She tiptoed back to the front door to look through the peephole and watched the mailman walking away back to his truck. Weird, she thought. Maybe he had to tie his shoes? Callie returned to the package and was excited to see that, delicately packed inside, was its usual variety of jars and bags and a letter from Mom. She did a small dance to herself when she opened the individual bags and found a loaf of sourdough, a jar of apricot jam, and a pound of coffee from her favorite coffee shop. This day is turning around, she thought. She headed to the counter with her bounty and began preparing her breakfast. With the smell of coffee heavy in the air, Callie sat down at her kitchen table with her bread and jam to read the letter from Mom. She smiled while she savored the flavors of her childhood, the opposing savory flavor of the warm, soft sourdough with the sticky, sweet apricot jam. Her smile broadened as she read the letter from Mom, hearing news of what was happening in their little town and a funny story of a fat raccoon breaking into the chicken coop. Once she finished eating and reading, she stared out the back door and let her mind wander. The interaction with the mailman kept returning to the forefront of her mind. Why was he so interested in my package? And why is he so acutely aware of what day my package normally comes? She tried not to think about it too much, but in her mind, the mailman's smile had turned from friendly to eerie. Monday came back around, and it was the usual grind. The normal mountain of emails, meetings, and interruptions, but it was an efficient day. She arrived home, excited to try the new recipe she'd found online over the weekend. Walking in the door, she hung her purse on the hook and went to the kitchen to start dinner. That's odd, she thought. Looking at the kitchen counter, she saw a plate with crumbs and a knife with the sticky evidence of apricot jam on it. I know I put that in the dishwasher so it could run while I was at work. It was an old habit to always put the dishes away before leaving the house. She didn't want to deal with a trail of ants upon arriving home. Picking up the plate to put it in the dishwasher, she noticed the dishwasher was locked. I did run the dishwasher. Did I just forget to put that one plate in before leaving? She knew she always put the dishes away, but she lived alone, so it wasn't the boogeyman. She went about her evening and then her week. The week grew stranger as it went on. She got a letter from Mom on Wednesday, saying she was going on vacation for a few weeks. Mom was such a homebody. She wouldn't even take the three-hour drive to come visit Callie. Callie was surprised Mom would trust someone to watch the chickens for that long. It just wasn't like her to leave. It just wasn't like her to leave. 
A few of her pieces of mail had been ripped open, probably by some neighborhood boys, and she kept finding things out of place around the house. Am I going crazy? When did I start leaving dishes in the sink and my dirty clothes on top of the hamper? She needed to get out of the house. On Friday, she asked her boss for some time off, and he agreed. Her performance at work had been great, and she deserved a break. She headed home during her lunch hour to start her vacation early. The woody smell of coffee hit her nostrils the moment she walked in the door. Callie's heart began to pound as she saw a plate on the kitchen table. I ate breakfast with a client today. I didn't have any dishes this morning. She scanned the room in a panic, trying to find a way to explain the aroma and the dish on the table. Suddenly, a burst of pain exploded at the back of her head and her vision went dark. Callie's eyes fluttered open, and she immediately felt the shock of pain in her skull. She noticed her clothes were changed into an evening dress. She'd been gagged, and her hands and feet were bound. Her vision finally focused to see someone sitting in the armchair across the room. It was the mailman, sitting in the chair and drinking a steaming mug of coffee. My coffee. He smiled, and she immediately could feel his eyes piercing through her. You came home early. I'm sorry, but I couldn't let you scream or get away. I've watched you for weeks and was waiting for the time to make you my own. Callie screamed, but it was muted by the gag. He put a surprisingly soft hand on her cheek. Don't worry, Callie. I'll be able to get that apricot jam to you where we're going. Callie tried to scream again as the smiling mailman's hand pressed down on her head and closed the box. Postal by Linton Bowers The screen of my laptop lit up my dark room. Grandma gave me a gift card on her visit last week, and I finally decided what I wanted to spend the money on. A video game. I ordered it online, and was almost through checking out when I reached the delivery option. I was at a bit of an impasse. Everyone in my neighborhood was afraid of the mailman, but I couldn't get an answer as to why. The closest I came was when Mr. Wilson, my neighbor, told me there was just something about the man. He emitted violence like cars emitted exhaust. His words, not mine. What the heck does that even mean? There was a strong desire in me to figure out why. So I chose the post office as my shipping option and made sure someone had to sign for the package. By my calculations, the package would arrive on Saturday, so I didn't have to worry about being at school when it came. I checked out and went to bed. Friday came, and so did my package tracking number via email. I clicked the link and was routed to the post office webpage that showed my package on time. It would be here tomorrow, and so would my answers. Saturday morning came, and I was up. In fact, I had a hard time sleeping, so I was up most of the night. I dragged myself into the kitchen and had breakfast. Time went by slow from there. I checked the clock every second, even though hours seemed to have passed. After what had to be the longest day of my life, the doorbell rang. I nearly jumped out of my skin. I dashed past my mom, who was on her way to get the door, and slammed into it. I was moving too fast to stop. I threw back the door. Aw, man, I said. Well, it's good to see you, too, my Aunt Jackie said. Hi, Donna. She directed her attention above me to my mother. 
As if I weren't there, Aunt Jackie brushed past me and joined Mom in the kitchen. Looking left and right just reinforced what I was dreading. The mailman wasn't here yet. I let out a sigh and my shoulders slumped. Back to the couch I went. No sooner had I sat down than the doorbell chimed again. I sprang up and ran for the door. My toe hit the edge of the couch. Pain shot through my foot and up my leg. I only had a split second to appreciate it before my face slammed into the carpet. Ouch, I said. I stood and walked to the door, rubbing my sore nose. Hello? I threw the door open and froze. A tall man in a blue uniform stood there. His shoulders were as broad as I was tall. A five o'clock shadow softened his chiseled jaw. Brown eyes peeked down at me through narrow slits. I've got a package, he said in a voice so smooth and husky he made Clint Eastwood sound feminine. Are you Catherine? I nodded. It was all I could manage. Understanding washed over me. I felt like moving too fast would cause this man to strike out at me like I was a field mouse that wandered into the wrong hole, and he was the snake. He held out a clipboard. Sign here. Never taking my eyes off him, I signed, and he handed me a small box wrapped in brown paper. You should put some ice on that nose. You should put some ice on that nose. He bent down and held my chin in his hand. He tilted my head up. Looks like you might be getting a couple shiners. You been fighting? No, sir, I whispered. Good. Only fight for something important. Never strike anyone in anger and always stand for something. He let my chin go and stood. Have a nice day. Before he turned, a dark figure fell from the sky and landed in a crouch behind him. There was a flash of steel followed by a loud clang. The mailman moved so fast I didn't see him use his clipboard to intercept the blade. His fists lashed out, much like I had pictured moments before, and he struck. Holy crap, it was a ninja! The ninja leapt back. When his, or her, feet hit the ground, two others landed next to, um, it. Oh, damn, I said. The mailman looked over his shoulder at me. Watch that language, young lady. Yes, sir. Watch out! The Ninja Three rushed forward as if controlled by one mind. Three swords sliced through the air, hitting... nothing. The mailman was gone. Where he had been was now occupied by a growing shadow. I tilted my head up. He was falling from the sky and pulling a pair of the biggest guns I had ever seen from under his shirt. Explosions shattered the air as round after round left the hand cannons. The ground around the ninjas jettisoned dirt and rocks with each impact. The ninjas vanished in a cloud of dust and dark earth. The mailman landed on one knee. He spun around and pointed a gun at me. He dropped the barrel as soon as his gaze landed on me. You should go inside, he said. My mouth opened, but no words came out, so I just nodded. One corner of the thin line that was his mouth moved up, forming a half-grin. He jumped back, then did a roundhouse kick. One of the ninjas leapt out of the cloud of dirt just in time to intercept the business end of the kick. He flew back. The mailman caught his... its... foot and spun it around. He sent the ninja sailing through the air. Another ninja pounced from the cloud just to be slammed into by his airborne buddy. Both once again disappeared behind the dirt and dust. Ninja number three walked out of the dust cloud. It stopped a good ten feet from the mailman and held its sword up parallel to the ground. With its left hand, it pulled down its face mask. It turned out to be a she. 
I thought that was pretty darn cool and almost started rooting for her to win. Girl power and all that. I've come for your head, postman, she said. I squinted to try and get a better look at her. Her lips didn't seem to be moving in time with the words leaving her mouth. I will have it one way or another. I giggled. I couldn't help it. Her mouth really was moving like she was from an old Chinese kung fu movie. The she-ninja opened her hand, letting the blade clatter on the floor. She pulled a long-bladed knife from behind her back and held it out with both hands, at the same angle the sword had been a moment ago. I will honor you with a close and personal death. Prepare yourself, postman. I giggled again, and so did the postman. The ninja's face reddened. The mailman thumbed a switch on the side of the gun in his right hand. A blade popped out of the bottom of the handle. He let the gun in his left hand fall to the floor. I jumped, expecting it to go off, but it didn't. It just made a thud as it hit the ground. He charged. She sidestepped. The lady ninja slashed at the mailman's side. He raised his mailbag and it took the brunt of the attack. Letters scattered in the wind from the wound in the cloth bag. The she-ninja lunged, trying to stick the blade straight into the mailman's gut. He tried getting his hand in the way, but I don't think he did. It was hard to see with them so close to each other. They were locked in those poses. The she-ninja, with her knife-holding hand thrust forward, and him hunched over the blade with one arm hanging down at his side, the gun dangling from his fingers, and the other wrapped around her wrist. My breath caught in my throat as I waited to see what happened. Then I noticed the trembling. Her arm was shaking, as was his. At the speed a glacier moves across the ground, he pushed her arm back into the side. Then he struck her wrist, causing her to drop the blade. He shoved her back and pointed his gun at her. I don't want to, but I will, he said. She ninja threw something small at the ground. Smoke exploded up and she was gone. The mailman bent down and picked up a letter. He handed it to me. Have a nice day. Then he was gone, and I knew why everyone was afraid of the mailman. Both of those stories are from brand new first-time word chefs, so thank you, Linton, and thank you, Terry. We hope to hear from you again. Keep writing and keep submitting. We're going to go ahead and move on to a promo. What happens when your favorite childhood television characters are forced into unemployment? What is a puppet to do when corporate America shuts down the television stations and educational shows that gave them purpose and a reason to live? Pretty much any and everything that a down-on-his-luck human would do. And much, much more. It's a rough-and-tumble, debauchery-riddled descent into madness and moral degradation as your favorite childhood friends do whatever it takes to survive and turn a profit, no matter the costs. One unlikely antihero steps out of the trash-strewn alleys to take back what was lost. My name is Oscar. I'm a grouch. I'm also a private eye. The Street. A satire by Paul E. Cooley, now available in trade paperback, audiobook, and ebook from shadowpublications.com, where we don't believe in happy endings. And I'm back. Now, you know that we normally do a variety of things, and pretty often you'll see a mystery meal. We have one done, but all the insanity of little LD being born has kind of made it hard for us to sit down and record. So it's in the works. I'm going to try and 
get Aaron and Theo to sit down and record the new mystery meal once they've had some sleep. Um, but we are still going to go ahead and open up our Facebook and Twitter feeds for the next mystery meal. So we'll have a couple of them coming up. Um, but for now, we're going to move on to a little seasoning. Uh, this is our first interview from Balticon 50. And this is with author Michael R. Underwood. Hey, Lexiconosaurs and Word Chefs, I'm here at Balticon 50 live with Mike, well, Michael R. Underwood, author of uh, Geekomancy and the successfully kickstarted Genre Knots uh, series of novellas, which we did a review on those a few episodes ago, and I still wholeheartedly believe that every single one of them is phenomenal. So how are you doing, Mike? I'm doing really well. It's uh, it's fun to be at the con. You know, this... I live just like three neighborhoods away from the location here, so it's really easy to get down to, and uh, I like I like getting to see people and having like a regional con base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an eleven-hour drive for me. Don't rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I want to go ahead and ask. We have a kind of generalized question we ask everybody at first. Mm-hmm. Is there a project that you have conceived of that you either haven't gotten to write due to time or because you felt like you weren't ready for it yet? Yeah, I've got. A, a kind of a science fiction with an interesting format idea that I'd like to get to some point in the future, and I would because I watched the the rebooted Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. um, when it was on, and then kind of rewatching it a little bit, even though it's very intense. So sometimes, like it's not what I'm looking to do. Yeah. Uh, but that show is so much from like it's the view from the top, mm-hmm. it's the political perspective, it's the military perspective. And I'm really interested in a project that would that would kind of take a uh, like a fleet-based planetary diaspora mm-hmm. and focus on the individual and the ship level. Kind of um, the, the 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 shorthand that I have for it in my brain is anthropologists in space. <laughs> You know, and that it would be almost uh, World War Z esque uh-huh. in and like an oral history yes. of a space diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know there's a lot of research I want to do first, like researching mm-hmm. case files for social workers and re- yeah. researching like disaster survival narratives and how uh, folk groups kind of reconstitute or how new groups uh, form in the wake of disasters and looking at you know post Katrina or Syrian refugees and that there's a lot of real world research that I should do before I embark on a project that's trying to, to really speak directly to that sociological mm-hmm. level. Um, so that's kind of the, that's the, the grand slam project in that's in the distant future that I'm hoping to, to research and then train up to be, to be good enough to write. Well, now that it's been spoken and is being publicized, you have to do it. I, I will. <laughs> I, I do have to do it. So someone may do something that's very close to it mm-hmm. at some point And then, uh, either, like they'll have done it, and I, and I can regist that one, right. or I'll just have to kind of adjust. Mm-hmm. I think that setup has so many different possibilities, especially yes. if it's very um, personally uh, oriented, mm-hmm. that even in that same setting, someone else mm-hmm. entirely could do something with well, it. Well, like, like you said with World War Z, how it was so many different perspectives on the exact same series yeah. of events. That would be really intriguing. <laughs> yeah, because you could do a whole like counter counter narrative version of World War Z mm-hmm. with a different you know set of twenty right. uh, twenty interviewees mm-hmm. who all had different positionalities and experiences uh, within that kind of that mm-hmm. historical timeline, and you could get 
you know, you could really you could have like four conflicting sets of accounts. Right. It'd be really interesting. Um, just out of curiosity, on a project like like that sort of a thing, um, one of the issues I struggle with is getting my characters to speak with different voices. Okay, yeah. is that something that you struggle with, or do you feel that you could actually? accurately have differences between say 20 point of view characters giving that kind of oral accounts i think with that i would probably be i'd be having people focus into first person narratives Mm -hmm. or like they would be self-reporting so it would be a question of finding each individual character voice from a very deep pov standpoint Mm -hmm. instead of like generalized third person voices because i tend to write um, very close third person that mm-hmm. is fairly some, sometimes in, um, interchangeable with first person. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was a gamer, uh, kind of as a lot of my storyteller training. No, I know, right? <laughs> uh, because I had so much experience, like being being the GM and just pl- like dropping into NPCs mm-hmm. uh, on the moment. And my parents met like doing musical theater and are both performers. That I feel pretty confident that I can develop and then inhabit a character voice. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it takes a little bit of work, and sometimes I have to write into the project right. before I find the voice of a character, and then I go back and, mm-hmm. and revise it. But that's something that I, I try to attend to, and I feel pretty well prepared to do, even with a larger project like that. Mm-hmm. It would just build in more time to the development cycle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, clearly you're a nerd. Yeah. Geek. Whichever, whichever all, term you prefer. Any, any and all, really. Um, because, like I said, you've, I mean, you've written a book called Geekomancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got the, the Genronauts series, yep. which are highly specialized nerd geekdoms. Yeah. Because um, so far out is you've got the Western world, you've got the sci-fi, and the recently released, because this is going to be in the future, yeah. um, uh, the uh, romance. Yeah. Um, how, how far into each of these genres do you personally delve versus how much do you actually have to research specifically for these stories? Yeah, so for the first season, I, I selected a suite of genres and subgenres that I was fairly familiar with mm-hmm. in one way or another. Um, when I was a kid, my dad worked at um, Ben or at um, Ben of Double Adel, mm-hmm. so they were the ones who published the um, books on tape version of Louis L'Amour's Western novels. Right. So I listened to probably twenty uh, Western books on tape, all written by Louis L'Amour as a kid, and I listened to them going to bed. So they just kind of <laughs> they branded themselves onto my right. brain. So when I was thinking about what genre or subgenre is really well defined in a lot of people's imaginations as a baseline to start with for the series, mm-hmm. Western really jumped out to me. And then the second episode is kind of Babylon 5E, Battlestar Galactica E, space opera. I'm mm-hmm. pretty well versed in that, both in, in prose form and in media. And then rom-coms, most of my experience is on the media side with television and film, right. not as much like rom-coms in prose form. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the episode four is like police procedural buddy cop story. So it's yeah. like Castle or uh, Psych or like a lot of the USA crime shows um, that are very Mm personality-driven. And then episodes five and six, the two-part finale, is traditional fantasy land, very much in the Diana Wynne-Jones, Rough Guide to Fantasyland Mm -hmm. style, and digging in, like diving into all the things that I love and all the things that I want to poke fun uh, at kind of the traditional genre Mm -hmm. for. Moving forward in the series, I want to tour kind of more subgenres across... Uh, some different categories, and if I can, I'd love to to do the research and get some some, some beta readers for it to do some genres I'm not as familiar with, mm-hmm. and especially to to go outside of what traditional Western storytelling styles, right? Like to do something with 
uh, Bollywood or Nollywood mm-hmm. or to do an episode that draws upon the wuxia tradition or chambara uh, mm-hmm. from Japan because I want to make sure that the series writ large acknowledges that there's a plurality of storytelling styles yes. and that the team is very specifically North American commercial genre mm-hmm. story sets because that's their beat and it right. lets me have a home base in the ones that I'm more familiar with. Mm-hmm. And then as the series goes on, I'll do the research. and Because the research for that, as I make the Cody Fingers, is like watching stuff, reading stuff, and it's all the things I want to do anyway. It's the dream. Yeah. But even though you've got uh, your character, since your team is based in North America, though, it is still an extremely diverse team. And you've got Sheeran. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, she's... And uh, I cannot remember the other... Their operator's name. Oh, Preeti. Preeti, thank you. Um, that could very easily kind of be your stepping stone into yeah. getting into. Was that intentional? Yeah. So, so there's a reason why uh, kind of Preeti is in ops, mm-hmm. and um, she she's positioned in my mind to be kind of a more direct member uh, or more direct participant in a story if they're going to go um, to like the base that's in mm-hmm. South Asia because I haven't I haven't totally decided where in South Asia I want that that base to be but because more of the world's population is in a circle that you can draw around South Asia Southeast Asia and East right. Asia more population is inside that circle than outside it so mm-hmm. in terms of like the multiverse of stories reflecting from our world those regions are going to be huge yeah um, and I wanted this team already to be intentionally diverse and I haven't put the king specific reasons into the text but I had identified it that King mostly recruits people who are marginalized within their own kind of cultural context Mm -hmm. because from his own experience being a black man growing up in Baltimore, which is a very divided city, Mm -hmm. um, I know because I know I live here, that he recruits people who are used to being on the outside of a story Mm -hmm. and he recruits people who are able to, um, to code switch. Yeah. between different systems of communication, different like discourses and relationships to power mm-hmm. because that's what they have to do when they're being genreized. Yeah. Well, like uh, like with Leah being Chinese American. Yeah. Yeah. I that is so deep. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 tricky because I'm intentionally setting up a team where I know that I have to be very careful mm-hmm. and then I have to do research and then I have to have people like checking my work. Right. Because I don't want to I don't want to be writing token mm-hmm. characters. I don't want to be writing characters who um, I, who I'm purporting to be from these different backgrounds, mm-hmm. but then to have it never be relevant. But I also don't want to claim the the job of speaking for these other positionalities. Mm-hmm. So, like, being Chinese-American is relevant to Leah's life. Mm-hmm. Being Iranian and being a trans is relevant to Shirin's I life. I forgot she's trans. Um, you know, and, and the her, her historical context is very specific because mm-hmm. she was coming of age just as the revolution of 79 was happening Mm -hmm. and she was, uh, her family were in tight with the previous regime. Like, so that's how she was in intelligence. And then like Iran around that the revolution time as the research I did was not at all friendly to trans people. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't super friendly uh, before and then after and like uh, decades after that, the, the setup in Iran as I, as I've read about it is that Anyone, like, if you're a guy and you're gay, they say, no, you're actually trans. Mm -hmm. You're a woman because everyone is heterosexual. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I wanted to be able to to have characters whose positionalities mattered, but to not say that I was going to speak for those positionalities. Yeah, I totally feel, like, like childish in my character selection now. (laughs) But, But, But... 
you know, I've been publishing for a while and I'm, I'm in a place where my day job pays enough that like for episode three, I, I cast a net out and um, hired a couple of sensitivity beta readers mm-hmm. because I had some scenes where kind of King's um, kind of being a black man, communicating with another character who was black, mm-hmm. where that was more relevant. And I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't being confident right. in the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it, it wasn't up to snuff and mm-hmm. I didn't want to, to write carelessly or hurtfully. Um, so where I can, I'm, I'm trying to, to bring in those consulting voices. Yeah. N- normally we would ask, uh, you know, what would you consider your greatest weakness as a writer and how do you strive to overcome it? Mm-hmm. That definitely just that consciousness is, is a huge, huge, uh, uh, feather in your hat, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Cause being a cis straight white male from America who grew up with parents who went to college mm-hmm. and having multiple graduate degrees, like, or having a graduate degree and, and, a, and an undergrad degree, like, I, I live on Privilege Mountain, yeah. and I know that there's so many things that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then knowing that there are things that I don't know doesn't actually make them known unknowns. I just know that I, that I have uh, restrictions on my perspective, mm-hmm. and I don't want to write only for my own positionality. Right. Um, so I, one of the weaknesses that I know that I have is limited perspective because privilege comes with uh, the ability to ignore things. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, let's flip that around. What would you consider your greatest strength as a writer? Probably my strengths are that I, what, I do my absolute best and I feel pretty confident in being able to put fun into a work. Mm-hmm. And part of that comes from like dialogue and characterization mm-hmm. and that I feel usually very confident writing dialogue and having a couple of characters and making sure that they feel that their dialogue kind of stands out from one another to at least a a fairly decent degree. Sometimes it's tricky because if you've got characters who are like old friends, Mm -hmm. I know that I start talking like my friends and there's like the way that we talk with each other. And then you have to figure out where those little points of difference are. Mm -hmm. Um, But being a gamer and, uh, just kind of the the way that my my brain works in terms of like I run social algorithms because like, <laughs> right. I worked in retail and right. like this, um, that I feel pretty confident in that I will be able to deliver when I want a story that's fun where the characters are interesting mm-hmm. and where there's like fun ba- banter or that the dialogue is going to be cool like I'm very happy to just write a scene with four people around a dinner table like being friends mm-hmm. and feel like I'm still delivering something that's going to be engaging yes absolutely. Um, like I said, we do try to keep these short, mm-hmm. so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, where can our listeners find you on the interweb? Sure. So my website is michaelrunderwood.com. Yep. And uh, my Twitter handle is Mike R. Underwood. And then um, up until June 8th at about noon, the Kickstarter for Genreots is still mm-hmm. running at michaelrunderwood.com slash Kickstarter. Yes. Uh, is there anything else you want to uh, impart to my listeners? Uh, if you are, if you like podcasts across a variety of, of interests, I'm also on the Skiffy and Fanti show and Speculate, the podcast for writers, readers, and fans. So check those out. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. He was just an all-around great guy to talk to. I really enjoyed that conversation. I wish I could have talked to him longer, but conventions, you, you got stuff to do. Um, but I do highly recommend going and checking out the genre not series. Um, we did mention, I believe, uh, the Geekomancy um, series that he's got. I haven't read that yet, but it's on my reading list and I cannot wait to get to it. Um, you may remember we did a, a food critic segment on the first two novellas of the genre not series. 
So, like I said, both of those got five stars for me, and uh, spoiler alert, the third one did too. Um, so go check those out. They are really, really great stories. That's actually all we've got for this episode. Um, like I said, we had a mystery mail, but we couldn't get to recording it because of little LD. So I'm just going to go into our regular announcements. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash afgrappin. You can help support the show. We are trying to get to our first goal of being able to actually pay people for the stories they send us. So if we can reach that goal, you'll get paid. It may not be much, but you'll still get paid for submitting a Stoke the Fire story, having it accepted and produced. Same thing for main ingredient stories. You submit a story, we'll buy it. So we really want to hit that goal. Um, our goal after that is to be able to pay our voice actors when we bring in outsiders and also to fund a better sound system which if we were able to get enough, it would mean actually building a small recording booth so you don't have to worry about us, us ever having cats jingling again like Rainy just did. Um, so yeah, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash afgrappin. Um, next announcement. I found out on June 14th that we got nominated for a Parsec Award. Um, those are the Specfic podcasting awards so i don't know who who nominated us or how but thank you we did get our submission in barely in time i guess we'll find out in september whether or not we actually won anything but i am just stoked to say that the melting podcast is a parsec nominated podcast so thank you whichever lexiconosaur word chef or person who just randomly heard about us nominated us thank you thank you thank you for that no other real big news except for, you know, just check out Facebook and Twitter. We will be having requests for mystery meal fill-outs. Um, the next one's going to be a good one, guys. The next two are going to be good ones because, you know, one's done. Um, prompts. Prompt number eight is closed. Prompt number eight was aliens have given you a super sense. How do you use it? And we are going to sometime, hopefully in August, have a cook-off challenge based on that prompt. So we got both of the stories submitted right on time. Uh, we're going to be having that before too long. We'll keep you posted. But that prompt is now closed to submissions. Currently open is prompt number nine. You wake up alone with bite marks on your legs. What's eating you? I really want to get some great stuff in there for that, guys. I've already written one for it. I need some other Stoke the Fires for that prompt. So go sit down. 1,500 words or less. It's not that much. Really easy to write and... We want to see what you guys do with it. What's eating you? And now opening is prompt number 10. An animal from outside your local ecosystem has entered nature and is breeding uncontrollably. So have fun with swarms of some sort of out-of-ecosystem creature for you guys. Uh, it, can, it can be something as simple as having some Australian creatures, have wallabies all of a sudden all over Iowa. Or, you know, you can make it up an alien creature. It doesn't matter. It just has to be from outside your local ecosystem or the local ecosystem of your story. So have fun with that one. Prompt number 10, that's going to be open for six months. And that's about it. So I'm going to get back to taking care of the grill mistress, the dish boy, and little junior chef. Thank you for stopping into the disaster kitchen. Send us stuff and we'll use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at meltingpodcast. Or you could email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it 
don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff. <laughs>